For the month of February, being the month of Valentine's Day, we are having a bunch of guest speakers from other ministries that we love to share their content. Yeah, we love these guys so much that we wanted to make you aware of who they are, what they're doing, and how they're um, strengthening the case for Christianity, and how they're also going out and loving people around them and sharing the good news with them. So we're really excited about this series for this month. Hope you are, uh, and hope that through this you can be equipped with some better resources and some really, really great apologetics work that's being done out there. Yes, so please enjoy this interview with Leighton Flowers. This is Christ, Culture, and Coffee, an apologetics podcast to help equip Christians to engage the culture through biblical, critical thinking. Your hosts for this podcast are Robbie Lashua and Tyler Hurley. Robbie is pastor of apologetics at Desert Springs Community Church, as well as professor of apologetics, worldview, and ethics at Mission Bible Institute. He is a graduate of Phoenix Seminary, as well as a graduate of the Master's in Christian Apologetics program at Biola University. Tyler is currently earning his undergraduate degree in theology at Grand Canyon University, and currently serves as an apologetics intern at Desert Springs Community Church. All right, thank you for listening to Christ, Culture, and Coffee. We're back again with Robbie and Tyler. Hi, we're here. Yep, and today we have special guest Leighton Flowers with us. Yeah, very special guest. I am excited about having Dr. Flowers on with us today. Um, if you don't know who he is, uh, he is currently the Director of Evangelism and Apologetics for Texas Baptists. Uh, he served as Director for Youth Evangelism for Texas. He did that for 13 years. Uh, and he's also, actually, Tyler, you, you'll know about this. He has his doctorate from New Orleans Baptist Theological Yeah, Center. right. I was looking at that and talking to you earlier. We, we ended up uh, visiting that yeah, place. Yeah, we've been there yeah, all the way from Phoenix. We've gone over there to, to go to a couple of apologetics conferences. Really cool. Um, Dr. Flowers, though, is also the adjunct professor of theology for Trinity Seminary. And one thing that I think is fascinating is that, uh, and, and Dr. Flowers, correct me if this is wrong, but your father uh, started CU at the Pole. Is that right? Yeah, he was um, the uh, youth evangelism director back uh, in 1989 when uh, CU at the Pole first began. And he, w- along with uh, several of the key leaders here in the state of Texas, uh, really uh, g- gave the uh, the initial uh, push for and start of See You at the Pole. Wow, that is yeah. awesome. Our youth group does See You at the Pole every year up here at Millennium High School. Um, so, man, really thankful for what your dad did. That is a great ministry. Yeah, that, that's really cool. Yep. In addition to all of those accolades, uh, Dr. Flowers also has a ministry called Soteriology 101. Uh, he has a podcast, a, a vodcast, he's on YouTube, he's got a website really phenomenal uh, ministry resource that we want to make you aware of because what he's tackling is the clarity of salvation. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. And he's talking about what does it take for us to be saved. Um, And he really gets into uh, Calvinism and traditionalist and Arminian theology and, and clarifying what the Bible says about how we're saved and, and what we must do to be saved, which is just Super important because this is the gospel. So highly encourage you to get involved and uh, listen to his podcast and see what's going on there. And also, uh, he's written a book that's called The Potter's Promise, A Biblical Defense for Traditional Soteriology. Uh, And I have this book. I've read it. Tyler, I don't think you've read it yet. No, I haven't You need to. This is a (laughs) phenomenal book uh, on Romans and talking about uh, election and predestination and and what what is Paul actually saying. Oh, wow, that's great. Yeah. It's a phenomenal book. So if you're out there, 
there, I would encourage you to, to buy Dr. Flower's book, The Potter's Promise. You can get it on Amazon or on his website, Soteriology 101. Uh, but Dr. Flowers, we're so thankful to have you here with us today. Yes, thank you. It's my honor, guys. Thank you for having me. All right, so we are Christ Culture and Coffee, and so we always like to give coffee tips at the beginnings of our shows. And so I wanted to ask you, uh, first of all, do you like coffee, which I'm hoping you, you do? And secondly, um, what kind of coffee do you like to drink? I like coffee. I like all kinds of coffee. I'm, not a, a coffee, I'm not a coffee snob um, in the sense that I have to have a certain brand or kind. I okay. just I like good, hot coffee. Um and I drink way too much of it. My wife gets on to me because um, I need to drink more water and uh -huh. kind of dilute some of the coffee I drink. But I am a coffee holic. My my wife tells me the same thing, and I always remind her. You know, the second main ingredient in coffee is water. Yeah, there's, That's there's right. Water. That's yeah, a, there's coffee. a lot of water in there. Yeah, That's tons. Right. So I don't I don't know what's going on here. Well, I'm glad you drink coffee, and I, I knew you did because you're a Christian. <laughs> so <laughs> really thankful, <laughs> thankful for that. Um, so um, yeah, we love coffee too. Um, well, we want to dive right into kind of the topic uh, for for today. And uh, we had a podcast, I think it was our 20th episode, and we talked about free will. And um, we, we compared libertarian free will with compatibilism. Yeah. Uh, and, and both of us are in favor of libertarian free will. And you could say we freely chose to be. Right. Yeah. Uh, if we're right. correct. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, we did have a little backlash. Nothing nothing bad. Um, but some people wrote some emails and, and were saying, you know, we, we might have misrepresented compatibilism and uh, the, the view of, of Luther and of uh, R.C. Sproul and a lot of the, the Calvinist reform types. And so uh, I wanted to have you on, Dr. Flowers, because you are, I mean, an expert in this area. This is what your, yeah, right. your, uh, your podcast is about. This is what your ministry is about. And so we just kind of wanted to open up the time for you to talk about uh, compatibilism and libertarian free will. So can you start just by defining the differences between those two? Sure. Um, well, let's start with compatibilism, um, and then we'll they'll move to more of the libertarian free will concepts. Okay. Uh, compatibilism is really just kind of the philosophical side of Calvinism. Um, but a lot of Calvinists who are, who are, you know, Piperites is what you call them. Sometimes John Piper fans, mm -hmm. um, yeah. people who, who follow, um, you know, guys like Tim Keller or uh, Matt Chandler or some of the popular Calvinists that are in our, our culture today don't typically get this deep into the studies with regard to compatibilism. Um, you'll you, you'll find this more from the the scholars within the Calvinistic camp, um, and so sometimes when you begin to talk about these things, you do get the accusation of misrepresentation because um, they're actually not aware. Some people, again, I'm speaking generally, mm -hmm. some, especially the young, restless, reformed type movement that's happening within the Southern Baptist Convention, my my uh, home home convention. Um, a lot of those kinds of Calvinists aren't real. Uh, educated about all the different philosophical and theological implications with regard to scholarly Calvinistic views. Mm. Um, and so sometimes when you begin to really dive into those things, you're going to get accusations of misrepresentation. And you could be quoting from John Calvin himself or, or the leading Calvinist and still get accusations of misrepresentation, which is usually meaning 
you're not representing Calvinism the way I learned it, or you're not representing what I think Calvinism is, even though you may be quoting directly from the scholars. And with that, like, and it it is important to point out, there's a spectrum of belief on people who, who call themselves Calvinists or call themselves Arminians. It's not like everybody believes exactly the same thing. Right. But when we're talking about this, what, what we mean is that we're, we're talking about the theology, what is written, the developed thought, the, the philosophy of it, not right. not what a person who calls himself a Calvinist believes. Correct. So we're not and, attacking and, anybody. Yes, and and that's and that's important to try to represent your opponents uh, fairly, mm-hmm. and to understand that mono, you know Calvinism is not a monolithic group. It's not that you know, like you said, it's not just a single spokesperson uh, that represents all Calvinists equally. And John Calvin. Uh, it obviously is a namesake, but even many of those who claim Calvinism disagree with uh, John Calvin on um, probably some pretty major theological points. Mm-hmm. And um, and so we, we have to be fair uh, to our Calvinistic friends in trying to represent a, a pretty broad kind of umbrella perspective. And, and compatibilism is just the philosophical uh, side of things by which we explain how the will of man works in correlation with um, God's will and his design and his decree um, and those kinds of things. And so it can get a little hairy. Um, people, you know, just, you know, want to debate these things and want to try to take issue with it. Um, but uh, there are some, you know, obviously leading scholars on both sides. And those are the, the people I tend to try to read the most of to try to find, uh, you know, using the principle of charity, find the best scholars from both perspective and try to represent th- those scholars as best in the best way you can and as fairly as you can, and then just critique and bring critique to the the you know the claims mm-hmm. if you don't feel that they're in line biblically. Yes, absolutely. And so and that's the guide, right? What Scripture says, and and with this issue too, is it fair to say maybe what we observe and how as human beings we live our lives, like when we look at the type of freedom yeah. that it seems that we have, if it does sure. line up with Scripture, it's, it's fair to say you know this, we kind of lean more towards this this line of thinking. Right. And and most even most compatibilistic determinists will um, acknowledge that we feel like we are making libertarianly free choices. We 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 act as if we are, even though philosophically they may believe we don't. Mm. Um, and and that's that's an interesting part of the discussion as well is 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 to is the way you feel, should that be taken into account as your intuitive uh, thoughts on these these subjects should that be taken into account as far as what may be actually true and not true but to get to your original question to define compatibilism um it it, it's rooted out of the word compatible and what it's ultimately saying is compatible it's saying that free will is compatible with divine determinism um and and what that means is that god in his quote-unquote oftentimes the word sovereignty is used uh, as a synonym for the word determinism. I, I, I would take issue with that. I don't think that's what the word sovereign means. Mm. And I actually have some Reformed scholars who agree with me on that point and actually mm. define the word sovereign in its proper context. Um, and that the word providence would be a better word for Calvinists to use okay. um, whenever you talk about these kinds of issues. Because to, so- to be sovereign just means that you have the right to rule however you want to. It doesn't necessarily yeah. answer the question, has, how, how has God chosen to rule? In, mm, that's in, a good course, distinction. Yeah, he could have just, you know, done like the deists say and just started the clock rolling and then and, and just left us here by ourselves. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. if he wants, God can do whatever he wants. Um, but that's that's how he would choose to rule. 
is the is in question. It's not whether he could choose to rule in a deterministic way or in a libertarian way or in a deistic way. It's it's what is the Bible revealing about his choice and how he's chosen to rule creatures. Okay. And so you can't just assume by question begging that you know God's right to rule must mean therefore he deterministically controls every thought, action, and deed in some mm-hmm. deterministic manner. Mm-hmm. Um, but compatibilists are ultimately saying free will, human responsibility is compatible with uh, divine, meticulous divine determinism. God determines all things that come to pass. Okay. Um, and the problem with that statement is that they've ultimately defined free will in a way that is different than what you and I would normally think of, or most people would normally think of when they think of free will. Because most of us intuitively think of free will as being a self-determined will. In other words, it is it is your choice to act or not act on, a, on any given desire. Mm-hmm. It is your choice to to refrain or not refrain from acting in any in, when you're tempted in any way, shape, or form. Um, and you could do otherwise. So if you lied yesterday at noon and you shouldn't have lied, you could have refrained from lying, mm-hmm. and you should have refrained from lying. <laughs> yeah. um, that that is the basic understanding of what free will is. But the way that the compatibilist has defined free will is ultimately to say you're you're free or you're responsible as long as you're doing what you desire. And okay. so if you're doing what you want to do, then that is all that is required for human freedom and responsibility for you to be held justly accountable for what you choose to do as long as you want to do that thing. So if, if in other words, somebody came to you with a gun and put it up to your head and said, I want you to go and, um, and rob the next person that's coming past us, you know, grab their purse and take it away from them. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, I'm going to shoot you in the head. Then you're being forced or coerced to do something against your will. And they would not call that freedom. Okay. However, if you had a desire to steal a purse, if that's something you wanted to do, regardless of how you, com- you came to want to do that, if you wanted to do that, then that would be a sufficient um, accountability or culpability for your your actual action and being judged for that action as long as you want to do what you end up doing. Mm-hmm. Now, this is this is where there's kind of a circularity within the claims of Calvinism because humans can be declared genuinely free or responsible so as long as their actions are in accordance with their desires or what they might call voluntary. But given the long-held Calvinistic belief that all events, all actions, whatsoever comes to pass, as the Westminster Confession says, all things are decreed by God, then human desire, the very thing that the compatibilists are claiming allows human choices to be considered free, that itself must also be decreed. But if so, then there's nothing outside of or beyond God's decree on which human freedom might be based. So to put it differently— there's no such thing as what a, a human really wants to do in any given situation considered somehow apart from or separate from God's desire in the matter. Mm. In other words, you will always do what God has decreed for you to want to do. So in the compatibilistic scheme, human desire is wholly derived from and wholly bound to okay. the divine desire. So you're and so God's decree encompasses everything. Go ahead. Sorry, you're predestined to desire. That's what it, what you're saying. Yeah, it, you, you, it, Dr. Hunter has been on the program a couple of times. Braxton Hunter, the president of Trinity, where I am an adjunct professor, and he puts it this way: He says something to the effect of, "You can do what you want, but you just can't want what you want." 
In other words, <laughs> your wants are ultimately determined by the nature that God has determined for you to have. And so you're born a God-hating uh, individual because of the fall of Adam. And this is an imputed guilt that's on you from birth. You have no control over this. Mm -hmm. And you have this nature that just automatically hates God from the womb. And you can't do anything but hate God unless God steps in and he changes your nature and your desires to be such that would accept and love him. And so this is just divine determinism, plain and simple. But what Calvinists say is, but you're still, a, you're still culpable. And the well, reason that you're still culpable is not because you can respond differently, but the reason you're culpable is because you're doing what you want to do. Even though those wants are controlled by somebody other than yourself, it's completely out of your control. You're still somehow responsible. You're still somehow culpable, even though God's the one who's ultimately controlling your nature from birth to either be a hater or a lover of God. Well, see, and that seems so counterintuitive to what Scripture says on a lot of levels because it tells us that we're supposed to um, not give in to desires of the flesh. Like, we're supposed, every day of my life, yeah. I'm not uh, allowing desires or wants that I have to, to happen because I know they're destructive, right? Now, again, some still come out and that's what sin is, but I'm supposed to control myself. Like, that's, I mean, that's what civilization is. If, if it was just everybody doing what they, no, that's their so greatest true. desire is, it would be anarchy. But the other thing is, is then we, how is it we can be held ultimately responsible for our actions if we are determined to do them and we can't choose against the desire that God's placed in us? And, and that's why I don't think that compatibilism in its framework really forms a sufficient basis on which we can establish the uh, responsibility of, of human choice. Yeah. Um, it's too much like animal instinct. I mean, the, the, the uh, analogy that um, Apologia Radio, uh, Jeff Durbin, who's a Calvinist there, um, he was explaining this as his analogy, too, of how it works. And he used the same analogy I use quite regularly. And he says, if a carnivorous lion is given the opportunity to eat, you know, a grass or a steak, it's always going to choose steak. Mm -hmm. Why? Because of its nature. And then he relates that to human beings. We're always going to choose to reject the things of God because of our nature. We will always choose otherwise. Well, I don't think that's a, a, a I don't think that's a, ba a good basis for moral accountability no. because we don't we don't obviously hold the lion accountable for his choice of meat over grass. Why? Because we recognize he was created by his his creator to be a carnivorous lion, mm -hmm. and and in the same way, you wouldn't hold a lion accountable. Oh, yeah. You wouldn't hold people accountable who are born unable to do anything other than hate God. Mm -hmm. And there's no really uh, there's no basis of blameworthiness for those who reject the things of God if they can do nothing but reject the things of God. Yeah, yeah, and that makes sense. And 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 then to compound the problem is you've got if God should be the one who's ultimately responsible for sin and evil, if he's the one giving me the desires to do it and I can't choose other than what I do. Yeah, if there's no choice, then it, it really it's all it doesn't make sense. Yeah, that's that And God's and God's the ultimate author of evil, which again I think goes clearly against what scripture says about God. I mean he's holy, he he can't lie. I mean, on and on and on. He he can't do sin. It's the complete opposite of his character. And so how is he the one who instigates and, and forces us to do heinous evil things and then not be responsible for mm -hmm. it? He, he punishes us for his wrongdoing. In a sense. Right. 
Well, and to be fair to to Calvinists on this point, I, I will back away and just say they they would be careful not to say things like he's the author of evil or that he forces people to do these things. Mm -hmm. And they would use much more careful vernacular to try to explain how God uses what they would call secondary causes and all of these kinds of things, which, again, I, I've read those those, um, you know, journal articles and books that explain these things. And to me, they just aren't sufficient to get around the problem that I've already presented. I, I don't find that secondary causes really gets them away from the, the culpability issue with regard to the divine decree. Um, and, 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 I, and so it's not that I don't understand what Calvinists are trying to say, which I'm often accused of not really getting it or understanding it. Mm -hmm. It's that I've, I understand it. I've, I reject it. I don't think that that's what the Bible teaches, nor do I think it's a sound philosophical position. I, I think it is self-contradictory and circular. Um, yeah. and, and evidence of that is R.C. Sproul's book, Chosen by God, which was one of the first books that I read convincing me of Calvinism early in life when I became a Calvinist. And, and it's, it's basically this, well, we, you will always choose according to your greatest desire. Mm -hmm. And how do you know what's your greatest desire? Well, because that's the one you chose. And so this is circular reasoning to say the only way you know it was your greatest desire is because you chose it. And you know that you had to choose that because it was your greatest desire. And again, that becomes instinctive reflex versus actual moral choice. And what we would say is, you know, we're not like the carnivorous line. We have many competing desires, but mm -hmm. it's my responsibility as to which desire I will act to fulfill. Yes. And so I can choose to refrain from eating the meat or lying, or any kind of moral choice that you put in front of me, as a human agent and created in the Imago Dei, I have the ability to refrain from following a particular desire. I can choose to follow this desire versus that desire um, in, a, in a given situation, and therefore I'm held responsible because I have choice, because I have the ability to deliberate and decide between competing desires. I am not destined or fated to act upon a particular desire that God meticulously, deterministically decreed before the world ever began and without any, uh, you know, I, without my having any say or control in the matter. Well, and I think, uh, yeah, you absolutely hit on the key is, is, is the Imago Dei something that we still possess or was it completely destroyed at the fall? And I don't think that, that anybody can say we don't possess aspects of the image of God in us, especially, you know, how in James he talks about you shouldn't murder because people are yeah. created in the image of God. So he's saying that's right. still a continuing thing here. And again, I, I think depravity-wise, or pervasively depraved, like depravity has affected every aspect of my being, physical and metaphysical. But that yes. doesn't mean I'm completely marred and uh, totally enabled uh, to, to do anything uh, that's against you know, my God-hating nature. Uh, when I'm born. Right. So I, well, I think the way I like to put it is just to say, yeah, we can, uh, we can agree with our Calvinistic friends that we're in bondage to sin, but that doesn't mean you can't humbly confess that you're in bondage when approached to, when approached with the gospel. Mm -hmm. And so when the gospel reveals your bondage, reveals your sin, reveals that you're hopeless, you're accountable to repent of the fact that you're hopeless, repent of the fact that you're in bondage. And, and then he will show you mercy because he's a gracious God, not because he owes that to you, not because he, you, you, you know, he's, he's, he's not forced to send his son. Uh, he's done that because he's gracious, but being in bondage or being enslaved has never meant that a person is incapable of confessing that fact and trusting in the one who can free them. Yeah. And that's what Calvinists have, uh, I think wrongly uh, concluded is that because we're in bondage, Therefore, we can't confess that we're in bondage and put our trust in Christ. Mm -hmm. And that's never established biblically as far as I can tell. No, yeah, I, I'd agree with you. I don't think that's biblical at all.
Um, so, so compatibilism, just to, to make sure we got the definition of it, is we're free to do what our greatest desire is, but it's God who gives us those desires. Yeah, and they may not say it quite that, that plainly to say God gives us those desires. What they might say is you're acting according to your nature. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of keep going back a step. You just keep asking them, why, why, why? And, and so you keep going, God's okay, what, where's the nature from? Yeah. Well, the nature is something from birth. That's what natural means. It's something from birth. Well, okay, so why do I have a nature that hates God and always rejects even the gospel when it's presented to me clearly? Mm-hmm. Well, because that's what God decreed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, in, it's inherited from the fall of Adam, and that's the punishment, and it's just the way that it is. Um, and who are you to question God is oftentimes the, the re- rejoinder to those kinds of, of statements. Yeah. And so it's just the way that it is. And that's that you just got to swallow that pill because that's what the Bible teaches. And of course, our Calvinistic friends are big Bible guys. They love the scriptures yeah. and they're trying to, and with good intentions, to interpret passages like Romans 9 and others uh, honestly and, and, and forthrightly. And, and they truly do believe, as I once did, that Romans 9, Ephesians 1, and some other key texts teach determinism in the sense of predestination. God is predestined mm-hmm. um, who will and won't believe in the truth of the gospel. And I, again, just don't find that that's, uh, you know, really what the scriptures were intending to teach or for us to understand about his nature and about what he's accomplishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I, I, again, you, you're way more versed in this than I am, but is it fair to say that because of their doctrine of total depravity, the whole philosophy gets off on the wrong foot of how soteriology works. I think so. Uh, and, that, and a lot of people don't focus on the T of TULIP, the total mm-hmm. depravity point. Um, a lot of a lot of non-Calvinists actually just concede that point to the Calvinist. Mm-hmm. And they say something to the effect, oh, yes, we agree. We're just totally depraved, totally depraved. But what they miss is that what Calvinists mean by total depravity is not just depravity. They mean inability, mm-hmm. meaning that people, because of their bondage, are incapable, morally incapable of confessing that they're in bondage and putting their trust in the one who's offering them a way out. Yeah. Um, and that's where I think there's not a link. It's a non sequitur. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you can't, you can't fulfill the demands of the law, they'll say, and therefore that means you can't believe in Christ mm-hmm. because believing in Christ is one of the laws. Well, that's again, that's a non sequitur. It's, 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 it's simply not st- taught in the pages of scripture. What Paul teaches over and over again is because you fall short, because you can't fulfill the demands of the law, you better put your trust in the one who did, yes. Christ. And what the Calvinist is saying, well, because you can't fulfill the demands of the law, therefore you can't trust in Christ unless God irresistibly causes you to want to do so. Mm-hmm. And again, it sounds like a you know plausible, possible way of thinking, but it's just not what the Bible teaches, as far as yeah. I can tell. It's just yeah. not what Paul teaches. Well, and, and I had a friend one time who, who, was a, who was a former Calvinist, and one of the things that brought him out of it he said was just reading the New Testament and seeing all of the places where there were warnings to Christians to walk in the Spirit, you know, um, abide in Christ, uh, obey my commands, all of these places that, that had language of, please do this because you can choose not to do it. And he said, right. he said the New Testament, we, we don't even need it if compatibilism, if, if, the, if the Calvinist approach is true. Why do we need all of these um, these, these scriptures imploring us to live for the Lord if I, I can't do any different than I do. And God's either going to allow me to live for him and, and give me that desire, or he's not, and I can't do anything yeah. different. And, and that, that alone sounds like bondage in itself, too. Like, not just not just the bondage of sin, but then you have this bondage of, hey, I'm, I'm bound to, like, be predestined to mm-hmm. do 
this like uh, directly to choose God or to not because that like that's that doesn't seem like you're breaking free of bondage. It seems like you're still bound to something that's determining your every thought and action. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and I think the Calvinists have just gotten the cart before the horse on that particular point. It's almost as if you have to be set free in order to confess that you're in bondage. And that's not, <laughs> that's, that's that doesn't make a lot of sense. You yeah, have to confess your bondage in order to be set free. Uh, you know, John 20, uh, 20, 31 says that these things were written so that you may believe mm-hmm. and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the order seems pretty clear to me that it's by believing that you're given new life. Mm-hmm. And there are dozens of other verses that say very similar things. You're made alive through faith and all these kinds of passages, yep. which clearly put faith as, 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 a prerequisite or a condition for new life. But yet the Calvinists like R.C. Sproul and other leading Calvinists have continually taught pre-faith regeneration, meaning mm-hmm. you had to be, you have to be ultimately given new life in order to believe the gospel in order mm-hmm. to, to receive Christ. And again, I just don't find that anywhere established in the pages of scripture. And, and, and I have read the, the best of the scholars from both sides and I'm not convinced, which mm-hmm. in and of itself is a proof of free will. As far as I can tell, because why would I have the free will to reject Calvinism if free will is not intact? Um, you would have to have a Calvinist that says that Leighton must not really believe, believe in Christ and not all non-Calvinists must not really be Christians uh, to be consistent because otherwise you've got God ultimately ordaining for some of his children to accept this truth and others of his children not to be able to accept the truth. Mm-hmm. And so you have different classes of God's children, um, some of them who are, are, are more intelligent or better or somehow, um, you know, able to accept these these quote unquote, you know, truths of sovereign grace, and these other, you know, lesser children of God who just can't grasp it or just can't see it in the pages of Scripture when they when they, you know, legitimately try to understand both sides and legitimately are open and objective and trying to understand these passages, but for whatever reason, God's just ordained the A.W. Tozers and the C.S. Lewis's of the world to be just not quite bright enough or, you know, humble enough or whatever it is to accept these doctrines of, mm-hmm. called Calvinism. Well, and again, and I think the fact that we have differences of opinion proves the very point that I'm talking about with regard to free will. I, I agree. And, and it, that just gets weird. And I, again, I, I don't know a ton of people who, th- I mean, you're thinking really in depth on this, right? But this is logically where it leads to. And I think that, um, it just, it gets weird because if that's true, that, you know, God hasn't uh, given me the desires to believe in this type of free will, then uh, most of most of the history of the world, most of, most of the history of the church hasn't believed in Calvinism either. And so why would God not give the truth to his children? It gets it gets right. really odd when you when you think about it in in that light. But yeah. when you think about well, it from a libertarian view, it makes sense that people can choose to think differently yeah. and read scripture differently. Well, the reason you have any false teaching or misunderstanding of scripture is because of the the freedom of choice. We have the ability to deliberate and to make decisions, and we make wrong decisions sometimes. Mm-hmm. We we have a you know we have errors in our thinking and our background and our ba- and baggage that causes us to do this. So I'm not putting that back onto a decree of God. In other words, I'm not saying God decreed for me to teach false theology or to understand the Bible wrongly. Instead, I take full responsibility for my my choices, just as I would put full responsibility on any other person who's making uh, errors in their doctrine. Mm-hmm. Um, and this also goes to even your own moral decisions as a Christian. As 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is famously known for saying, you know, you're never going to be tempted beyond what you can bear. Mm-hmm. So again, if we use the analogy of lying yesterday at noon, um, if you were tempted to lie 
and you fell into that temptation and you lied, then according to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you could have um, resisted that temptation. And of course, we know from James, God's not the one who tempts. He never tempts anybody. And so we know we're not being tempted by God. And we also know that we have within uh, the scriptures the, the, the needed resources to resist temptation. Mm-hmm. Again, this establishes libertarian freedom, which is the ability to choose between available options. It's mm-hmm. the self-determined choice. In other words, it's not being determined by someone other than myself, i.e. the eternal decree of God. It is being, de- it is being determined by the agent who's held accountable for that determination. Yes. And so my determination to lie when tempted is all on me. It's, it's not, I can't put it back on the decree of God. I can't put it back on, well, God decided for me to decide this. God decided for my desire to be such. And this is very vital to really overcoming addiction. For example, this is part of my testimony in coming out of Calvinism is that when you hold to a deterministic way of thinking, whether you want it to lead to um, kind of a fatalistic mindset or not, sometimes it can inevitably lead that direction because you always have what all addicts are looking for justification for your actions. And so you look back and go, oh, well, the reason I looked at pornography or the reason I did those drugs or the reason I drank that alcohol was ultimately because God decreed for me to do that thing. He desired ultimately for me to desire that thing for his own self-glorification, no less, according to Calvinism. Yeah. And therefore, you know, if, if God wants me, I even had one Calvinist say to me, um, well, God gives some people a thorn in the flesh. And sometimes those addiction, he was talking about homosexuality, gives them a thorn in the flesh. Mm. That same-sex desire that some Christians even struggle with, he was saying, no, that's just a thorn in the flesh God's given some people. So he's ultimately putting it back onto God as to the temptations and to the ultimate decisions that you've made throughout your life up to this point, which gives the the rationalization and the justification that every addict is looking for. Mm. And ultimately that removes their own personal ownership of their decisions. And it puts it back onto a decree of God that's never established, as far as I can tell, within the pages of Scripture. Yeah, well, and that's just an odd thing to say, because I don't think Paul says God gave him a thorn in the flesh, right? Didn't he say he has a thorn in the flesh, and he prayed to ask God to remove it, but God wouldn't. God's allowed well, it. Well, and there's no evidence that that's a moral, it's about a moral desire to sin, sure. either. It, sure, it very true. likely, mm-hmm. probably yeah. an eye issue as far as his health, and mm-hmm. just saying God didn't choose to heal me from this 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 thorn in the flesh well, is probably what most scholars believe that it is. And going back to your your what you were saying about um, just just Christian living sanctification, how we can be free from the power of sin in our life if we abide in Christ and walk in the Spirit. Yeah, under under this view of compatibilism, it seems to me that a lot of times um, people who believe that they they're praying for God <clears throat> to intervene because they believe He has to do it all. But Scripture said, no, you're already a, a child of God. You've already been given everything in regards to godly living, right? Peter tells us this. We, we have all the tools at our disposal. We just need to walk in the Spirit and abide in Christ. But it seems like a lot of times people are praying to become what they already are, and they just need to right. realize who God has already made them and then, and then walk accordingly. Well, and sometimes that's that's some of the the problem that we have is that even even as non-Calvinists, sometimes we can we can kind of fall into this way of thinking. Um, my wife happens to be a therapist, and she she works at a she did work as at a, a Christian counseling center for a time, and so you've got a lot of church folks coming in, and one of the the biggest issues she continually deals with is people putting back onto God things that they're responsible for. Um, and ultimately just continuing to say, oh, God, take away this desire. Oh, God, change this thing in my life. 
instead of uh, owning their own mistakes and realizing that the reason that you're doing this and the reason these things are going this this way are because of your decisions mm-hmm. or because of your choices. It's not, this is not God's will for you. This is not what God is destined for you. This is not what God has chosen for you. And how many times you would hear Christian folks just resort back to, well, I guess this was God's plan. No, I'm yeah. sorry. It was not God's plan for you to be addicted to pornography. I'm no. sorry. That's just not what God's <laughs> plan was for you. No, that's your decisions. Those are your choices. Well, and he's given you everything you need to walk in godliness and, and righteousness. And that, and now take responsibility. That kind of a, that kind of a statement. It's just a form of denial, isn't it? And and everyone knows the step in therapy is to not keep denying what you're responsible for, but oh to take God. responsibility yeah, for yourself. So, so yeah, just to, to push it onto God, I don't think that that. I mean, it doesn't help you, um, and it's also just completely inaccurate. But you're right. You do hear a lot of people say that. Well, I guess this must be God's will or, you know, the death of a, of a child or somebody's disease. And they say, you know, oh, well, this is God's will. It isn't God's will. Death wasn't his will. He came to fix it, actually. And he's trying yeah, he to change did. the whole thing. So. Yeah. He's the redeemer of yes. our determinations. He's not He's not redeeming his own determinations. No, he's, he's redeeming cleaning up our mess. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's why he gets all the glory for Absolutely. his redemption of those things. Yeah, it, it, it's a crazy idea to say that he's made this horrible mess and then he's cleaning it up and he can get glory from that. Right. I, well, I, the analogy we idea. use is, is, you know, the fireman, uh, if you find out the fireman is also the arsonist, the fireman, <laughs> you know, the fireman doesn't get near as much glory for rescuing the few people out of the, the burning building once they realize he's also the one who set the fire. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, even unintentionally, Calvinists may not think they're, that they're doing that with God. But that's ultimately what their systematic is is doing is ultimately saying God has determined the fall mm-hmm. through meticulous, you know, compatibilistic determinism. He's yeah. determined every sin, every every desire, everything that's happened. And therefore he's set the fire as well as doing the things to redeem certain individuals from that which that fire that he set. Mm-hmm. And um and then that that I think completely undermines the character of God and his desire for and his expression of desire for the salvation of all people. Hmm. Well this leads me to another question because we you know I've I've heard you say that you know well God could have decided to to make a world like the Calvinists. God could have made sure. a world differently. But do you think that he could have done what they're saying he did based on his character? Is that even possible for God to to give evil desires? No, that's a good objection. And I think Jerry Walls would probably agree with you on that point. Um, and he's made arguments and I would agree too. In principle, my point in saying that is that I don't believe it's beyond his power mm-hmm. to create a world that he deterministically controls in that manner. Yes. What I would say is the question you're getting to is is would he do so? And and this is where Jerry Walls makes the point. Um, you know, I have the power, and this I know this is kind of a harsh analogy, but this is the one he uses. I have the power to strangle one of my children. Mm-hmm. He said, but I, I just be honest, I can't do that. Yeah. There's no way my character would allow me to strangle one of my children willingly. I just could not do that. And that's not a weakness of Jerry. No, that's an actual that's an actual expression of his strength yes. in his character. In the same way with God. God could do a lot of things because he's powerful enough to do a lot, you know, anything. Mm-hmm. But the fact that God wouldn't do something speaks more to his character than his ability. Yes. And that's, and that's yeah. really the biggest issue between the two vo- views. You've got one category of, of people, the Calvinistic compatibilist, who's really emphasizing the ability of God, his power, his sovereignty, those kinds of things. And you've got the other side emphasizing his character. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know about you, but I would much rather... 
appeal to the mystery of man's capriciousness and um, you know the abilities and things of that nature than to appeal to a mystery with regarding his character. Yes. Um, I, you know, talk about my inability to bench press, you know, wait all day long. Talk about my inability <laughs> to run a fast marathon all day long. But if you start talking about my my character or my lack of love for my children or something of that nature, that's when true anger is going to come from me because I don't, I value my character much more so than I would value what you think about my abilities that's a um, or how, how powerful or strong you think I am. Um, and so I, I think so too, we've got to be really walk very, tread very lightly, very carefully when we talk about the character of our God and what he would be willing to do as far as what scripture reveals about his nature through, especially the revelation through Jesus Christ, who was yes. one to sacrifice himself for his enemies, well, not pass them by on the other side of the road. Just the idea of love. I mean, it's all through the Bible. God, I mean, Jesus' best friend, right? I think I actually heard you say this. Jesus' best friend described him as love. God is love, right? Um, it, it just seems that, that it's just such a, I don't want to say crazy idea. It just seems like a real misstep. Um, when people are elevating his control and his ability over who he clearly over and over and over doesn't just tell us he is, but gives us an example of who he is by his patience with Israel right. and then by obviously the incarnation and his sacrifice on the cross. I, I just, man, it, you're right. It's a, it's, it's a, well, yeah, and it's some a of dangerous it, thing. It, the reason it's happened is because of it. It's kind of a pendulum swing or a backlash against what's happened within our culture of the last 20 years or so, 20, 30, 40 years of, of a high emphasis on God's love, mm -hmm. where you have a lot of the, you know, what I, you know, Joel Olstein types of, of preaching where it's, it's more of the, it's more of all about the good aspects of God's character and goodness and love. And they don't talk about the wrath of God. They don't talk about judgment. They don't talk mm -hmm. about hell. They don't talk about the difficulties of scripture. And so sometimes the backlash of that is to go the totally opposite direction. Yeah. And we got to put so much more emphasis on the wrath of God. We've got to talk about the judgment of God. We've got to talk about all these other things. And and there, part of them is right in saying, yeah, you can't leave out the bad news you, in order to understand oh, and, sure. and appreciate the good news. You've got to understand the bad news. Yep. But you can also recognize yeah. that backlash pendulum swing sometimes goes too far. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what hap is happening right now in our culture is that there's a backlash to the seeker-sensitive kind of, you know, softer view of theology that has gone too far, and it's neglected, I think, the goodness of God's character and desire for the salvation of all people. Mm -hmm. Well, just to, to get that, yeah. I mean, this is great stuff, but just to make sure for our listeners that we, I, I know you've, you've, you've mentioned it a couple times, but just, if you could, just define, when we say libertarian free will, what, what do we mean by that? How does, how does that work? The simplest way to define it is just self-determined. Okay. In other words, determined. your choices are determined by yourself. The cause of a choice is the chooser. That a mm -hmm. cause of a determination is the determiner. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing more to that because what you'll oftentimes hear Calvinists say is, okay, what determined for you to determine that choice? Well, that's assuming a deterministic answer is required. It's question banking. <laughs> yeah. So I'm the determiner. I, the agent is the determiner. So because what, what, what Sproul's done, for example, is it was, well, your desire is what des has determined your action. So your desire to, uh, to, to eat cake, you have a desire for chocolate. You love that chocolate. So the reason you ate that piece of cake is ultimately because your desire, your greatest preset desire is what determined your choice. And I'm saying, no, 
I could have refrained from eating the piece of cake. I chose to act upon that desire versus the desire to lose weight mm -hmm. or many other competing desires that may be at play in that particular given situation. Yes. And so the, the true moral accountability is not based upon doing what one wants to do, but true moral accountability, I believe, is based upon whether one is doing what they determine to do. In other words, yeah. it's it's based upon what they have self-determined, not based upon factors beyond their control, which is what compatibilistic determinism ultimately has. Every choice is being ultimately based upon the desired slash decree of God. And, and therefore, they can always say, well, the reason X happened was because God decreed for that X for X to happen. So the reason you desire to lust is because God decreed for you to desire to lust, despite the fact that 1 John 2.16 says that, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life are not from God, but from the world. Yep. Um, you still have Calvinists who openly and very consistently say that everything is ultimately by God's decree. Mm. And I don't see how you can consistently say on one hand that something is from a, a causally determined if decree of God before the, the foundation of the world and yet not be from him or something that he would be blameworthy for. Mm. I don't think that that's a, uh, consistent or logically sound philosophical worldview. Yeah, well, and, and it's fair. Is it fair to say that God determined for us to have libertarian free will? Like that's the world. Yeah. It's also the kind of the common sense view, isn't it? Like, isn't this how we all live our lives? So it's either an illusion that God's created for us, and it's really not happening, which then it becomes so it's somewhat of a lie that He's made. It's a facade to what He's really trying to do. Which, again, that gets into his character. Or um, it is how the world is, and, and I make decisions all day long, and, and God's telling me he, he wants me to make correct decisions. He wants me to be truly free, which would be to do the right thing, do what I know is the right thing to do all the time, which I, I don't have the ability right. to do that yet. Right. I think A.W. Tozer said it well, and I know if you listen to the broadcast, you've probably heard me say it a thousand times, and I'll say it a thousand more because it's just so concise in, in the way he says it and so eloquent. Um, he said, God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice, and man from the beginning has fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. When he chooses to do evil, he does not thereby countervail the sovereign will of God, but fulfills it inasmuch as the eternal decree decided not which choice the man should make, but that he should be free to make it. Mm -hmm. If in his absolute freedom, God has willed to give man limited freedom, who is there to stay his hand or say, why dost thou? Man's will is free because God is sovereign. Mm -hmm. A God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. And that's from the <laughs> knowledge of the holy, the attributes of God. Wow, I love good. that quote. Because yeah, that's I just, awesome. It's ultimately saying God is responsible for giving humans free will. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, you could say he's the first cause of all things that take place, but he is not the direct cause or culpable for what free creatures end up choosing to do. Yes. What would you say, what's your opinion of why God created a world in which we do have this type of free will? Why libertarian free will? Because it's what's necessary for real relationship and love. Mm. Um, I think Ravi Zacharias has an article on that as well as a, plenty of broadcasts on YouTube if you were to type it in. Uh, John Lennox, I just played a recent broadcast at Sotriology101.com on my podcast uh, going through that as well uh, with John Lennox giving a similar explanation relying largely upon C.S. Lewis's quote. Um, 
And, and I, we, we've heard it all our lives. The whole reason you put the tree in the garden in the first place, you know, God, if you don't want them to eat the tree, then, you know, put a big wall around it, yeah. you know, or, or don't put it in there in the first place. Mm -hmm. Don't make a rule that they can break and they won't break any rules. You know, yeah. it's the same question as to why you would give your son the inheritance uh, to the prodigal son story. Mm -hmm. You know, wh why even give it to him? He, he can't rebel and walk away if you don't give it to him. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason we believe uh, the theodicy is the problem of evil. The reason we believe that evil exists and problems occur in this world is because in order for this world to have true relationship and not just a world of automatons, as C.S. Lewis puts it, um, there has to be choice. There has to be freedom. And, and we believe that that was necessary for us to have true worship, true love, true relationship, true responsibility. All the things that matter in life really come from this freedom. And, and the way you could put it to a child, if you were explaining it to them, if um, if you had a stuffed animal, a stuffed puppy, you know, an animal that looked just like a puppy and a real puppy right next to each other, and they looked exactly alike. I mean, the, the creators of, of this stuffed animal looked exactly like the real one. One of them's there wiggling in your hand like a puppy does and licking on your fingers, and the other one's just sitting there like a stuffed animal. And you ask the child, uh, which one do you want? You know what they're going to say 99 times out of 100. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, I want the real puppy. Yeah, and yeah. you're like, well, wait, wait, let me explain some things to you. This puppy over here, this stuffed puppy over here, it only does what you want it to. I mean, it won't poop <laughs> on your carpet. It will not chew up your favorite toys. Um, but I promise you this other one will do all of those things at one time or another. Mm -hmm. And um, you're you sure you want the real puppy because this one will do exactly what you want and won't do anything except what you want it to do. This one over here, there's no telling. It is a risk. Which one do you want? Still 99 times out of 100, they're going to choose the real one. Why? Sure. Because all of us intuitively know that freedom is worth the risk, mm -hmm. that it's worth yeah. real relationship, that's yeah. worth real love. That's so good. Well, yeah. I, I thought too, like with, with the compatibilist view of God, they're, they're trying to elevate his glory and his sovereignty uh, to its rightful place, which is great because I, I'm about God's glory. I, I think it's important. I think him be, being in control of everything is important, and he is sovereign over it. He has rulership. But um, it seems to me that they're making him a smaller God than if libertarian freedom is real because if he really did decree for us to have libertarian free will, that is a big type of God to still be able to carry out what he wants to still, you know, through history, bring about his decrees in a sense and, and still bring us to the place that he desires while allowing people to actually make free choices and not controlling them like, like they were a robot or automaton, like Lewis said. Right. Well, and, and I would just argue that we, we would agree with Calvinists that God is about revealing his glory to the world. Mm -hmm. But the question is, what what is it that reveals his glory? And I think God's glorified not by the sacrifice of all humanity for the sake of his glory, or, the, or at least a, a large portion of humanity for the sake of his glory, which is ultimately what you have in reprobation, yeah. where God is selected for the mass of humanity to be passed by, to, to have this decreed hatred from birth. And, and ultimately, he's glorified through their destruction. And so ultimately, you've got Calvinism emphasizing a God being glorified by the sacrifice of most of, of humanity for the sake of his glory. In other words, he's kind of stepping on most of humanity in order to make himself look stronger and better and powerful. Mm. And I'm saying, no, I think God's more glorified in the sacrifice of himself for the sake of all humanity, yes. even those who are unwilling to come. Yep. And, that and therefore, like he's getting all the glory, even for yeah. those who deny his grace and mercy. Yeah, that type of God sounds like a villain, not a hero. 
I, I don't Calvinist know. Would, yeah. You know, Calvinists wouldn't see it that way, obviously. Sure, I, mean, sure, yeah. I, I mean, being a Calvinist, I didn't think of it that way. But looking at it from the other direction now, looking back on it, I can see exactly why people would come to that conclusion. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem to emphasize, I think, the things that we find the most uh, true about Jesus and his and what he revealed about himself. Yeah. Um, his self-sacrificial nature, the willing to his willingness to give up him uh, himself for the sake of his enemies, not... Um, not ultimately put down his enemies for his own sake, um, and and I think that has to be emphasized and understood in order to and in order to really understand what it means to say God is love. How do you define love except how Scripture defines it, yeah, which is not self-serving, not yeah. self-seeking. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, getting to apologetics, how do you think the belief in compatibilism would affect your apologetics approach? Well, uh, that's a really important discussion because as the director of apologetics with evangelism here in Texas Baptist, this is one of the the concerns I've seen is that the way we're doing evangelism and the way we're doing apologetics with the rise of Calvinism has shifted because it's not so much about persuading people to believe the truthfulness of the word of God under compatibilism, because after all, if he's elected you, you're going to believe it. Mm -hmm. Um, And if uh, you know, you, you proclaim the truth and if, if it sticks, it's because God wanted it to stick. And if it doesn't stick, it's because God obviously didn't want you. Um, And so that's going to lead people into doing evangelism in a much different way than it would. I think what we see from, for example, Paul in Acts 28 uh, beginning in verse 23, when it says, uh, they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning until evening. You want to talk about a long invitation? Here's, here's a long <laughs> one. From morning until evening, he's explaining about the kingdom of God from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said. And here's a, here's a doctrine of free will right here, plain and simple. Some are convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. That's an act of the will, by the way, would not believe. In other words, they're refusing to believe. Some are convinced, some would not believe. Verse 25, they disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, speaking obviously to Israel here, go to this people, Israel, and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving for this people's heart has become callous. Now, I want you to notice something about that. Notice it's unique to Israel. In other words, he's speaking to a people who have heard the voice of God, but have grown calloused and hardened to it. He's not speaking about ontological reality of all humanity from birth due to the fall of Adam. Mm -hmm. He's talking about them being ever hearing, but not understanding, ever seeing, but not perceiving because they have closed their eyes, because they have grown calloused. Mm -hmm. All of us have the potential of growing calloused, Mm -hmm. but we're not already born already calloused. And it says they hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. In other words, their eyes weren't born already closed, already corpse-like dead in a way the Calvinist would describe total inability. But instead, they have closed their eyes. They're responsible for this. Otherwise, what might they have been able to do? It says, otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn. And I would heal them, expressing his desire. He wants to heal them. And verse 28 is a clincher. Therefore, I want you to know God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Well, the difference between the Jew, the hardened Jew, and the Gentile is not about morality. Both of them are immoral. Mm -hmm. The difference is that one of them's willing and able to listen in his pigsty, in his rebellion, because he hasn't become the old wineskin that can't take the new wine. He hasn't grown calloused and hardened to the truth of God's word. He hasn't grown self-righteous. He's a sinner, but he knows he's a sinner and he's willing to listen. That a concept right there is oftentimes ignored and overlooked by theologians in the New Testament because this is 
historically, the context of what's happening at this time right now is that the Jews in their callous rebellion are being cut off from the revelation mm -hmm. while the light is now being brought to the Gentiles. They're being grafted into that light so that they can receive this truth. And it's happening through the rebellion of the Jews at this time. That gives us our apologetic right there. Because when we're bringing these truths, these light, when we realize revelation is what's needed, light is what's needed, the gospel is what's needed. And if we truly believe, as Paul taught, that the gospel is the power of God into salvation, then what are we going to use as our power? We're going to speak truth. We're going to mm -hmm. speak the gospel because we realize that faith cometh by hearing. Yes. And if they hear the word of God and we try to proclaim that truth and persuade others of its truthfulness, as Paul did all day long with his audience, then we're recognizing we're doing this. We're driven by this because we actually believe that anyone could be saved and that God desires for all to be saved because that drives us to compel. It drives us to persuade. And it's interesting that the word persuasion is used three times more often in the New Testament than the word predestination, but yet wow. it's a fraction of its uh, the attention. That's we need to talk about what it means to persuade others of the truthfulness of God's word. Yeah, well, and it just seems like that's what Scripture says all over. I mean, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, right? We're supposed to go out and we're supposed to be ambassadors for Christ to represent Him well, to tell other people about our true home and our true kingdom so they can join in and become citizens of, of heaven as well. That, that's the whole drive of apologetics is to persuade people, right? To break away the cobwebs, the false philosophies they believed in, the lies of this world that have really clouded their mind and to help them see the truth because Jesus said the truth will set people free. Yes. Uh, so it, it just, it, yeah, I've, I've always thought, and again, I, you know, I've, I've tried to, <laughs> tried to uh, list, you know, who are the, the compatibilist uh, apologists out there versus the libertarian. And there's a ton more libertarian. There are some compatibilist apologists, yes. yeah. but there's a ton more. I mean, all the guys, and again, you know, maybe I'm a, a, a victim or a, a product of the schools I went to, but even at Biola, none of the guys in the apologetics program out there are, are compatibilists. None of them. They're all libertarians, you know? And so, yeah. And even some of the ones that are kind of leaning towards compatibilism or Calvinism mm -hmm. typically don't, don't haven't really thought through or haven't really uh, highlighted that issue. They, no. they're, they're more like the J.I. Packers of the old school where they'll say things like, I think Norman Geisler and other older, that older generation used to kind of handle these, these issues by saying things like, well, there's two parallel lines that meet in eternity, or, you know, there's a sign on the outside of the door that says whosoever will, but inside it says you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Sure. And they kind of ignore the philosophical slash theological issues pertaining this, this debate. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they kind of stay out of the fray of the debate, so to speak. And I think that's one of the reasons you see such a rise of Calvinism is because those who haven't been really uh, high Calvinist haven't really done much to answer these questions from a philosophical and theological vantage point and, and, and an exegetical vantage point. And that's one of the reasons I've done the, the podcast is to try to say, you know, guys, some of the best and brightest scholars throughout church history have actually been uh, free will advocates and libertarian free will advocates at that and have had and the early church fathers all the way up to Augustine, even by yes. John Calvin's own admission taught free will, yes. um, libertarianly free will, by the way. Yes. And so it's just, it's just one of those things that it, it's kind of, we're in a microcosm of the, of history right now, where it looks like if you get on the internet, it's, it's like all the bright 
you know, most intelligent people seem to be Calvinistic leaning yes. theologically, but it just takes a little bit more digging to learn that that's not the way it's always been. And it's certainly not the way it always will be because historically Calvinism has resurged and then died back out mm -hmm. about four times in the last 500 years. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that it'll die back out again in the next decade or so or two. Um, and people will ask, why in the world did it die back out? And I'll say, well, either God decreed it or it wasn't a <laughs> philosophy worth, uh, worth uh, defending. Yeah, well, definitely. And, you know, going back to your point on the early church fathers, even the early Augustine wasn't a determinist. It wasn't until the, it wasn't the Pelagian controversy where he kind of reinstated some of these Manichaean ideas that he had. Um, I use a lot in, in, in a class I teach on, on why God allows evil. There's some amazing quotes by Augustine, early Augustine, on, yes. on how free will works and God's still sovereign, but, but we have a libertarian type free will. Um, so, yeah, even, even him as a, you know, the figure that's held up a lot, he didn't believe yeah. that early on at all. Right. Um, yeah. Well, a lot, of the older, a lot of the older guys, you can use um, almost as many quotes in defense of, of libertarian free will as you can in defense of Calvinism. Uh, and you know, Spurgeon's the same way. I've got dozens and dozens of quotes that I've saved over the years that actually support um, my side versus the Calvinistic side. And 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 C.S. Spurgeon was a known you know Calvinist, especially yeah. in his day. But he was one of those kinds of what you call inconsistent kind of Calvinists that pretty much just say there's the two parallel lines. There's these two truths that we just can't ever reconcile, and that's just the way that it is. And and I understand why people want to go there. It's, it's, you don't want to get too, you know, controversial. You don't want to split your church. You don't want to mm -hmm. cause division. I get all of that. And I don't want that either. Yes. But at the same time, if you, if you hold to a contradiction, you have falsified your view. And if you're an apologist, you just can't stand for that kind of thing. You can't, you can't allow for people to say things that falsify your belief system. Um, and I don't think exegetically it's necessary to say that there's the two parallel lines because one of the parallel lines, I'm sorry, i.e. determinism, is not established in the scriptures as far as I can tell. Yep. Um, and and you, you, your burden is to establish that God has determined whatsoever comes to pass, including men's evil desires and choices. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah. I don't find that in the pages of scripture. Well, and don't you find that the, the reason that the Armenian side and the Calvinist side, both of them have a... a I would say it's a it's a misunderstanding. They think that if God doesn't determine the future, then He doesn't know the future. And I don't. I just don't think that that follows at all. How He can know it without having to determine everything in it. He can know the future without causing everything in the future. Right. And this is where John Lennox's uh, audio that I used a, a few uh, weeks back. Um, really speaks into this because he really dif differentiates between the what, uh, excuse me, between the how and the that. Um, we believe that God created something from nothing. Mm -hmm. How did God create something from nothing? <laughs> we really don't know that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, we know that he knows all things. How does he know all things? We don't know. We, we, <laughs> any more so than we can explain how he creates something from nothing. There's certain areas of mystery that all of us affirm. The question is, what mysteries do the Bible afford? And I think the the how questions are oftentimes the mystery. We don't know how God knows what we freely will choose to do. We just believe that he does because the Bible says that he does. Mm -hmm. So if Judas is known to deny Christ three times before he actually does it, before the rooster crows, which is a very specific number at a very specific time, showing that obviously Jesus knew exactly what was going to take place with Judas, um, 
then that establishes that God somehow knew what a libertarianly free creature will do. Mm -hmm. Now, you can come away from two conclusions. You can conclude, well, that must mean Jesus or the Godhead determined for Judas to do that. And he couldn't have done otherwise because he was predetermined, his nature was determined such that he couldn't have resisted those temptations and that God determined all those things that came to pass exactly the way they happened in such a way that, that Judas ultimately never had any sense of, of libertarian free will, or you you can determine, or, or you can decide that somehow God in his eternal nature knows what free creatures will do. Um, I choose the latter because I think that's what the scripture says. I never see it say anything to the, the effect of, well, God somehow um, determined the nature, desires, choices of Judas in such a way that he couldn't have done otherwise. And of course, that's only one example of every single heinous sin, rape, molestation in the world that you would ultimately have to conclude, well, God decided for that molester to oh, decide yeah. to molest. Mm -hmm. God decided for, not not permitted, because that, that word is, is not uh, acceptable sure. within the Calvinistic framework, according to Calvin himself, because what is he permitting if not the freedom of the, the choice, if, if not the, the will of the man? Mm -hmm. um, God is... On Calvinism, God is the decider. He's the only decider. Mm -hmm. He's deciding ultimately everything that will be decided by any creature. Mm -hmm. So the choice of Satan to, to rebel, the choice of Adam and Eve to, to sin, the choice of every rape, every molestation, the Holocaust, every single decision is ultimately a decision that was first made by God. And mm -hmm. he determined what you would determine or what every heinous evil person would determine. And that is not a sufficient basis on which to... Uh, bring in human culpability or nor is it a sufficient basis on to establish a, a character that's worth worshiping yeah, and um, also, in it makes him smaller like even just an omniscience right that the compatibilist god has smaller omniscience than the libertarianly yes. free and so yeah, we're, we're right. diminishing his character and we're, we're making him smaller and again going back to you know the ontological argument for god's existence i if, if i can think of a better god than the Calvinist God, or a greater God, more powerful, more omniscient, uh, according to the ontological argument, then that should be the God that's there, right? That should be the God that yeah. actually exists. And so I don't, it, it's amazing because they're trying to make him and, and, and exalt his glory by making him smaller. Right. And a great way of, of, of illustrating that is to say, you know, if, if I told you what I was going to do later with, um, you know, with my figurines, I'll say I have some like GI Joes here in my drawer. I, mm -hmm. I don't have any here. I used to back <laughs> when I was a kid. I love GI Joe. Um, but let's say I have some GI Joes here. And if I told you, I here's what I'm going to do with my GI Joes, and I told you precisely everything I was going to do with them, mm -hmm. y'all would kind of look at me like I'm strange. And okay, sure. Dr. Flowers, you play with toys. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> um, not, not a not a real big deal. Um, but if I could tell you exactly what you two gentlemen were going to do after this show was over, and I knew exactly what words you were going to say, exactly where you were going to go, exactly who you were going to talk to, you guys would be absolutely amazed by my ability to foreknow what you would independently of me choose to do. Yes. That is true omniscience. That's true ability to know what others will do. So what you've ultimately got Calvinist doing is God doesn't foreknow what independent creatures will do. He only foreknows what he's determined. That's all he knows under Calvinism. So God ultimately can only know what he has predetermined 
to take place. Yeah. He has predetermined what you will choose to do. And therefore he knows what you will choose to do based upon the fact that he's determined that. And that, like you said, is reducing his omniscience, his power and his ability mm -hmm. uh, to something, I think, lesser than what the scripture reveals. Yeah. It reduce it even reduces, like if you apply that to prophecy, who, who cares if he tells us what's going to happen in the future, because he's setting up the figurines himself. Oh. That's not right. miraculous. That's yeah. yeah. It's not miraculous at all. It's just, any of us can do that. Well, and, and to be clear, there are some things that God directly does and actively yes. does do. And he can obviously prophesy about those things as well. And he does, mm -hmm. um, you, you know, his work into bringing about the crucifixion, for example, mm -hmm. is something that he prophesied uh, or had prophesied through his, um, his prophets of old. Yep. Um, but he uses already sinful and depraved people like Judas and, and Pilate and others. He uses, notice I said uses, not he effectually causes them to be what they are, mm -hmm. but knowing who they are, he uses them in their given circumstances to ensure that his redemptive plan comes to pass. Just like, like I've used the analogy before, a police officer using criminals in his neighborhood to bring about a sting operation. Mm -hmm. Now, if, if I were to, to see a sting operation by a police officer and I would say, oh, well, that police officer used those criminals to bring about that crime. Therefore, that must mean those cops actually caused all the crime in the city. Well, that's a non sequitur, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that's what Calvinists have done. Well, look what God did to determine the crucifixion. Therefore, God must have determined all the sin that the crucifixion came to redeem. Mm. And that's just, it's just a no, that doesn't horrible non sequitur that brings the character of God into question. Again, it makes him the, the fireman and the arsonist is yes. ultimately God redeeming, dying to redeem his own determinations, mm -hmm. which is absurd and ridiculous when you really begin to philosophically and theologically think about the implications. Yeah. And then he lies about his character on top of that, telling mm -hmm. us he's not like that. It's just, it, it's a mess all around. So I want, I would like to end the podcast because I think one of your biggest strengths, aside from your intellect and the time you put into study and how articulate you are, I think one of the greatest aspects of, of you and what you're doing, Dr. Flowers, is that you're nice about it. <laughs> I can't overemphasize that. That is huge. So often, you know, we've all seen theological disputes and disagreements turn really ugly um, and, and un-Christian-like. Un uh, you know, yeah. people killing, literally, you know, killing each other over diff different it issues. Used to be. Yeah, much more so, yes. Yeah. And, and so one of the things I appreciate about you is, is you're very kind and loving towards people like the Calvinist compatibilists who you disagree with. And I'd just like you to speak to, to why that is a bigger issue um, for us as brothers in, in the Lord than, than um, arguing. Why, why is it a bigger issue yeah. for us to treat each other correctly? Well, one is biblical. I mean, the, the Bible does teach us to speak uh, truth with love and kindness. Um, and, the, and the Bible also teaches us in Proverbs, um, I think it's 1621, that um, the sweetness of speech is persuasive. In other words, you actually win more people with honey than vinegar, as they say. Um, you're, going to, you're going to be more effective by, by speaking with respect. Yes. Um, if somebody gets on the show with you and just berating you personally or, or speaking down to you or talking down like you're just not all that bright, are you likely to listen to anything they have no. to say? Are you no likely to, to study any further? <laughs> of course not. Um, and so it's practically a better way of doing apologetics. Mm -hmm. Secondly, and besides it being biblical, it's, it's practical as well. But secondly, I've not always been that way. Um, I'd like to be able to say, yeah, yeah, I've always been this cordial, loving, you know, kind person. <laughs> sure. I haven't. I've, I've had a, I've had to have a few smackdowns in my life. One being a Calvinist for ten years, being certain I was right, 
smacking down all those stupid Armenians on the uh, the web boards that I used to debate, and I just mm-hmm. I was railing on them as in my cage stage times, and and it and it, you go through something like that where you, I sp- helped to split my home church over this issue, causing mm-hmm. my parents to have to leave their beloved church and all these other issues, yeah. um, and seeing the harm and the pain and the and the issues that that ended up causing, um, you know that seeing that, looking back on that, I'm, I'm shamed by the way that I acted and my heart was broken. I came to the pigsty in, in my own theological world, as well as in my own spiritual uh, world of just being broken. Mm-hmm. And listen, here, here's a, here's something you could take to the bank. People who've been shown grace show grace. Hmm. Yeah. People who feel like they're still under judgment, they tend to be more judgmental. Hmm. They ch- people who don't feel like they've been shown patience, they're not very patient. And what I've experienced is I've experienced a very patient God, and I've experienced a very gracious God, despite the stupidity of latent flowers throughout my life, and how and how God, through even my parents, who are not Calvinists, by the way, mm. continue to love me and show me unconditional love, despite the fact that they abhorred my doctrine. Wow. Um, the fact that I had people, loving people in my life, both Calvinist and non-Calvinist, by the way, who continued to show me grace and mercy despite my addictions and despite my failures. Mm. Um, it's been through those, those pigsty moments that I have, have softened the edges off of this rough, very um, uh, gruff, very unforgiving individual named that, you know, is, is Leighton flowers. <laughs> and, and so I will just say, um, I just thank God that the internet wasn't out when I was there at that age sure. <laughs> um, where I, I have all this stuff on record of me acting the jerk. Oh, um, but, but, it, but the internet and my understanding of how to use YouTube and, and podcasts and stuff didn't come until after God had really broken me down mm-hmm. and rubbed off those edges because what you're seeing is more of the sanctified version of one who's been through a bunch of, of really, uh, you know, serious uh, self-correction needs needed for self-correction in my own life yeah. and, and and the result of what grace can do to a to a you know, poor sap like myself <laughs> and and i and i just i just encourage those especially those guys that you guys who are in your 20s and 30s um just oh be patient be mm-hmm. <laughs> be quiet for a while and 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 maybe wait before you before you lash out and before you speak um, because I think one day, if you're anything like me, you're going to look back on it and go, Ugh, man, yeah. I really regret that. I really regret speaking so quickly and, and being so harsh against somebody um, and, and, and recognizing that I really didn't do any good by, mm-hmm. by acting that way towards others. Yeah, and so, I'm always reminded of that verse, you know, Jesus in, in uh, John 13, 35, right? By this, yeah. everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love each other. And yeah. I, I tell people all the time, it's not by your cool Christian tattoos, it's not by your fish on your car, or by the t-shirts you wear, or what music, you know, it's it's if you love or, each other. Or perfect doctrinal fidelity, by the way. Exactly. No, exactly. They, hey, they will know you by whether you can check these these Apostle Creed's, you know, points of the Apostle Creed. <laughs> sure. Well, you know. And isn't it, I, I'm so thankful that that's not, it, it, it's the law of love. It's, it's the new covenant. That's that's what God is calling right. us to and what right. he desires for us to be. And so when it does come to disputes, you know, I mean, I've got friends who are Calvinists and I've got friends who are more Pentecostal and, and uh, more charismatic than, than I would be, you know, what I think scripture says. But at the same time, I, I have to be humble enough to think I don't, I'm probably wrong about some stuff, right? <laughs> in my own life, I'm yeah. pretty sure there's probably I'm areas I'm wrong. I'm definitely sure you're wrong about something. Exactly. Yep. And, and I'm sure you're right <laughs> so about that. 
but it's just it's humility and you know if, if, if we get to heaven and god says ravi what was this idea this is not what my word taught you know i'm, I'm just so thankful that that my salvation is not dependent on my accuracy doctrinally and i'm so thankful that i can love other brothers who disagree with me just just because Amen. we disagree doesn't mean i hate them you know we, we are supposed to love each other and i think it might be in, in god's sovereignty that he left scripture I don't want to say ambiguous, but there's points of it where he could have told us exactly what he meant or exactly what doctrine to take. And he didn't for some reason. And maybe it's because we would read it differently and we would see different things. And in our differences, he wants us to love each other. So he's giving us an avenue of you're going to have to disagree and still be kind and love each other and be gracious. And so I think that that's where we got to start. And I really am grateful for you because on your podcast, you're always gracious and you're kind. You don't rail on people. You you bring up the the arguments, the ideas, and that's what you argue. So really do appreciate. Can't can't recommend your podcast more highly. We we love it. It's it's great. Well, I appreciate that. And and I, and I appreciate you guys having me on the program and, and, and pray that we can model that kind of cordiality with others as we have theological yes. disagreements. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, that uh, the Potter's Promise book that you come out with. That sounds really <laughs> You'll like it, man. It's really good. Yeah, really yeah. good stuff. Yep, highly so. recommend that to any of our listeners. But thanks so much for being with us today, Dr. Flowers. Really appreciate you yeah. and you sharing your expertise with us. This has been awesome. Thank you, thank you for our listeners for, for checking this out. We'll be back again next week on Christ, Culture, and Coffee. Thanks so much. You have been listening to Christ, Culture, and Coffee, a podcast ministry of Desert Springs Community Church in Goodyear, Arizona. For more information, visit our website at dscchurch.com.